that's people that have been in and out of church. Uh, just all the phone numbers you got in your, your address book, just text people, mass texts, um, especially people who've just kind of been through the church and, and um, try to do everything you can. Bring your family out, um, brothers, sisters, parents, whatever you can do. Get folks to come into the presence of God tonight because um, I want to minister a word I, I believe I've heard from heaven uh, for this evening, and it's really going to help you as you progress through your journey in life with God. God is not done with you, folks. He's taking you somewhere great. Um, this morning, I, I want to minister to to deep into your heart. Um, the, the, the sermon I'm going to be talking to you about uh, this morning, again, I, I really felt impressed by the Spirit of God. Uh, I, I like to say this when I minister these kinds of sermons, is that the Church of Jesus Christ is a hospital. It's, it's, like, it's like a hospital. Um, I say that because the Bible calls Jesus the great physician. And so he really, Jesus is a doctor. And he knows how to treat every type of spiritual medical condition. <laughs> when you go and see your doctor uh, and your doctor asks you where it hurts, where's the pain, you know, what are your symptoms? If you say, oh, no, I got no pain, I got no symptoms, well, you know what? You're going to leave the hospital just as sick as you were when you came. And so when you come into Jesus's hospital, where he's the great physician, we can't lie to him. We got to be honest about where we're at. This is what I'm really going through and, and not be in denial because he wants the best for you. I really mean that, folks. It's not something preachers just say, oh, he's saying because he's a brother. No, I'm, I'm telling you, folks, Jesus wants the best for you. I want to read uh, the, the book of John, uh, spend time in, in, this, in, this, in this book, in just one verse of scripture, and we're going to read together verse 18 in just a moment. Um, <clears throat> but let me tell you what happened in Arizona uh, I believe it was last year, uh, I read the article, it might have been the start of last year, maybe the end of, of 2020, I can't quite remember when I picked up the article. Uh, but what happened was a lady had walked into an Amazon distribution center. Uh, she's pregnant, her um, waters had broken, so she's gone into labor, and she goes into the ladies' room, she goes into the bathroom, and she gives birth to a baby. Uh, she cuts the umbilical cord, and then she takes the baby and tosses the baby into the trash can and then walks out. Uh, when they, they finally caught up with her, uh, she, they asked her why she would do such a barbaric thing. And she said, well, she didn't know that she was pregnant. Now, come on, folks, you carried a baby for some nine plus months, and you said you didn't know you were pregnant? I mean, I, okay, let me give you the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you didn't know. Maybe she had a pot belly. I, I don't know. But when you gave birth to the child, you're holding the baby in your hands, you actively and deliberately threw your baby into the trash can. At that point, you knew you were pregnant. You all agree with me here? Yeah. Or are you guys are not opposed to abortion and casting babies in the trash cans? <laughs> I mean, that's the, that, it horrifies me. And, and when I read that article, I said, oh, thank God that when we were birthed into the kingdom of God, God didn't take us and toss us into a trash can. But he cradles us. He nurtures us. He cares for us. And this whole message is to let you know just how much you mean to God. You might not have felt like that all the time. Some of you might be going through bouts of depression and loneliness and rejection and all these various things. I came here this morning to minister to you the word of God to, to, to fill your heart with hope about Jesus that died on the cross for us. And the word we're going to read here, just this one verse of scripture, uh, these are some of the most beautiful words you're going to read in all the word of God. And, and it, simple words, what Jesus said in Matthew, uh, in, in John 14, verse 18, he says, I will not leave you comfortless. I'm reading from the old King James you probably can tell by now I'm addicted to this version of the Bible. When I got saved, uh, that's all I've ever known. 
But he says, I will not leave you comfortless. Everyone say comfortless. Now, I'm not sure what translation you're reading. If you're reading a good translation, it's probably already translated that word for you. But the word comfortless is the Greek word orphanos, which is where we get the English word orphan from. So essentially what Jesus is saying is I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. So Jesus is on his way to be with the Father. He's about to depart. He knows he's going to the cross. And he knows the, 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 the feeling of void and emptiness uh, the, the, the feeling of hollowness that's going to come upon these full-grown men. And he says, hey, I'm going, but I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. And I want to talk to you this morning about the orphan spirit. Father, we are so grateful and appreciative of the word of God, its simplicity, its truth, its revelation, its application, God, its relevance. We know it has power to change. It has power to heal your word, O oh God. Let it penetrate our hearts. Let it get deep down, God, where it can heal wounds that have crippled your people. And we thank you, Lord, for great deliverance that's about to happen here this morning. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, the Lord's redeemed, shouted amen. amen. According to uh, the dictionary, most of us already know the definition of an orphan, but an orphan is one who has been bereaved. You've lost a parent. You uh, it could be a mother, it could be a father. Usually the term is used when children are uh, abandoned, forsaken, or perhaps uh, left to themselves at a very young or perhaps a vulnerable age. But nonetheless, it is the absence of a father or a mother or perhaps even both. According to the United Nations Children's Emergency, it states that the total estimated number of orphans worldwide is approximately 153 million. I'm pretty sure that uh, since this Ukraine incident, that that number has jumped. And again, you know, you can look up these facts, but it, it's roughly around 153 million children roam the earth without parents. It stated that 22% are maternal orphans. Of course, that's when you lose your mother. It says that 65% are paternal orphans. That's when you lose your father. 11% are double orphans, which is when you lose both parents. And every day, about 5,700 become orphans. 5,700 children become orphaned every day. In Russia and the Ukraine, which is what we're talking about, they just carried out the statistics. In Russia and Ukraine, 10 to 15 percent commit suicide before they reach the age of 18. Uh, 60 percent of girls become prostitutes and 70 percent of boys become hardened criminals. See, one of the things that you have to appreciate is that the building block of every society is the family. I'll say that again. The building block of society is the family, the family unit, the nucleus family, the husband, the wife and the children. That is what is the building block of every society and every community. So watch this. If you want to destroy a society, then you have to destroy the families because a broken society is as a result of broken families, fragmented families. The devil understands this truth, so he launches his attack and his assault on families. He wants to debilitate families. He wants to tear down families. He knows that if he can assault the family, he can destroy the societies that we're part of, destroy the communities, uh, and hence destroy the world. Uh, uh, the aim of the devil is to break down the family. Is everybody with me here this morning? And he uses and employs all kinds uh, of techniques and strategies. Uh, he sets booby traps. Uh, he uses the, 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 the dis gender dysphoria lie to destroy families, the feminism lie, the divorce lie. Uh, he uses the lesbian lie and the homosexual lie. He uses all of these things to assault uh, and destroy and attack the family unit. Uh, the devil understands this truth, uh, and so he uses this all the time. Let, be, be, be not amazed, folks, at the, the breakdown and the debilitation of, of societies uh, because it's all rooted in family structure. You know, I was, I was thinking about a couple that I, uh, I had married years ago, um, uh, and uh, I, actually both of them got saved in the church I pioneered, but then were later on in different churches. I, I'd moved cities, and the, the sister actually had finished her university, and she moved uh, to London where I was pastoring. And so, you know, they, they got together, they wanted to get married, and that's fine, they got married. And after six-plus years of marriage, they had a beautiful little girl, 
uh, they, he, this guy decided he no longer wanted to be married to his wife. I'm like, you can't do that. You're a Christian. He's a young man in his 20s that wants to end his marriage for no apparent reason. His wife isn't an evil woman. She's a matter of fact, she was one of the best Christian girls in our church, actually in the entire UK fellowship. I mean, any man in his right mind wouldn't want to be married to her. But he's like, no, I'm, I just don't want this relationship. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm done with this. And so he, he drives his wife and daughter to uh, his, his mother-in-law's and drops them at the doorstep and then drives back to his city, leaves them there, abandons them. And so he tries to come back oftentimes to pick up his daughter, take her for a meal, hang out with her. Let's go roller skating. Let's go swimming, biking in the park or something. And one day her, his six-year-old daughter stopped him and said, Dad, I don't want friendship. I, I, wanna, I, I want a family. A six-year-old girl. So I was like, I'm not, I'm not into this. Oh, you want to be friends? Are we going to hang out together? So I says, no, no, no. I want, I want a family. I want our family back together again. She's six, folks. How is it that a six-year-old is able to articulate herself that well? She has an understanding and a perception. Be not fooled. Children understand a whole lot more than we give them credit for. This girl understood what was going on, and she says to her father, I don't want friendship. What I want is I want a family. She understood what was happening. Kids know what's going on, folks. They might not say much, but they know what's really going on. If you've ever heard the word or the term feral or feral child, the word feral, feral actually comes from the Latin fera or ferus. It means wild child. The child is now untamable. The child is out of control. This is a wild child. And what comes to mind when I think of a feral children or a feral child are those, you know, fictitious cartoons and, 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 and the, the, that we used to watch growing up and read, you know, the Jungle Book. And, uh, uh, you know, remember that? Remember, remember, remember Jungle Book? I think it was Mowgli. Mowgli, I know you know the stories. You don't pretend like you don't know. Bagheera. I think it was a jaguar, then there's uh, Baloo the bear and some other, you know, Shere Khan the tiger and all the, you know the story I'm talking about. You probably still have the colorful books at home, right? And you probably secretly still read it. But, the, <laughs> but you know, he's, he's wild, you know, he's got, got, got some leaves on him. He's barefoot, running around with bushy hair. Tarzan's another one, raised by a family of monkeys, apes, you know, Parents killed, and here he's running, swinging from vine to vine, speaking gorilla, you know, wild. And those, though those are fictitious tales, uh, the, the reality is there are and have been sightings of feral children that perhaps there's tribal wars, civil wars that decimate a village or a town. Parents are killed. The kids are stripped uh, of that covering, and they run into the wild. And they're found naked, uh, barefoot, eating uh, berries and nuts and all kinds of things to survive. Uh, there have uh, been sightings of these kids. Uh, they claim that many of these kids are being raised by wild animals. And though I can't substantiate those claims, uh, what I do know is that when they rescue these kids and they extract them from the wild and they try to reintegrate them with society, they found them to be troubled children. They've got all kinds of psychological issues, mental issues. Uh, man, they, they can't operate or function properly. They've got social problems. Uh, they are troubled kids. They are wild kids, or as the term states, uh, feral kids. You know, I was, uh, when I was living in England, I followed, uh, I didn't really follow it, but it's a, it a soccer team. Uh, and it was called Manchester City, and I, I, don't, I don't know, Pastor, what team you supported when you were living in it, but I, I didn't really support Manchester City, but I followed the team and like to watch them play all the time, only because of one character, a guy by the name of Mario Balotelli. His family had moved from Italy uh, when he was young. He was about three years old. He had got taken ill, and uh, the, this family don't have money. You know, they've come from West Africa, and people are telling him, look, this kid's not going to survive. He's not going to make it. He's going to die anyway. You don't even have the money. You're wasting your time. They took their child, Mario, and they put him in foster care. Now, that's the worst thing you can do. Your child needs you at this point, but they put their kid in foster care, and uh, pretty much they gave him up. The Balotellis took him in and raised him, nurtured him back to health. 
Uh, he ends up becoming a professional uh, soccer player, but he had bizarre, I mean, character, just obnoxious. He just an eccentric, the kind of guy you wouldn't want your sister to marry. Uh, you wouldn't want uh, uh, your, your daughter to marry. It's like you're troubled. Your mind is crazy. You've lost it. To, but but, but you've you got to be careful before you criticize people because to understand where people have come from uh, gives us uh, insightful wisdom into why they are the way they are. People are the way they are for reason, folks. They ain't going, yeah, he's crazy. Yeah, but what, what did his childhood say? What happened to him? What happened to her? What took place when they were young? You got to understand, folks, that a lot of things that happen in our childhood are things that are suppressed. Years, there's sedimentation, layers on top of layers on top of layers, and we suppress pain. And these things oftentimes have an effect upon us that affect our character, our personality, how we behave, affects our view of life, our relationship uh, uh, horizontally with other people. Uh, things in our past have the ability to trigger things in the present. And we can stand there and be critical and very judgmental of people, but not really understanding where they've come from. This man, Mario, was rejected by his family, his mother and his father. When he needed them the most, they tossed them away. So he now becomes a multimillionaire from soccer playing, and he's a star footballer or soccer player. And uh, then his biological family reach back to him and say, hey, listen, you know, we're your real family. Don't forget, you know. And, and, and listen, he disowned his family, folks. And I almost don't blame him for doing it because uh, you can tell a lot about an individual by how they handle and treat people that can't do anything for them. We know what you're really made of, how you handle people that can't do anything for you and can't do anything to you. Let's see how you handle those people. Then we'll know what kind of person you really are. I notice it's gone really quiet in here, but I'm just trying to be truthful here, folks, uh, because there are wounds that have been inflicted in childhood that somehow are carried all the way through into adulthood. And it's an orphan spirit. You know, when I talk about the orphan spirit, you might think, well, he's addressing kids. We're all, most of us here are grown up. We're over 18, whatever. No, you know, the, the orphan spirit message actually is for grown-ups. Jesus was talking to adult men. You can have a president of a country that has an orphan spirit, a prime minister. You can have a CEO. Of, of, you can have a manager of a company. You can have a pastor. It doesn't matter who you are. You can, you can have this orphan spirit. And I'm thinking about this spirit, how it has affected so many. Uh, and I, I'm thinking about the book of Genesis 21 uh, from 9 to 14. I'm not going to read it, but it's the narrative where, that describes what happened when, when Abraham asked Ishmael, his first son, who was nothing but a child, to leave the house. I'm sure you all remember that story. So pack your bags, leave the house. He sends him out with uh, Hagar, uh, his, his wife, because Hagar actually became his wife. Uh, and so he sends, he sends them away. And uh, you don't understand, folks, the pain that, that is contained in the heart of a child, in the life of a child, when the father disowns. I, you, you can't live here anymore. You need to move out. We don't want you in this place. You're a troublemaker. And, and, and to send that child away. The only way to fully understand and appreciate this uh, is to step into the shoes of Ishmael, who was nothing but a teenager, and understand what he must have been feeling at the time when his own daddy told him to leave. I think the most troubling aspect of that narrative uh, is the fact that at this point in Abraham's life, uh, he was a multimillionaire, rich with livestock, cattle, silver, gold, you name it. He's, he was rich making money in his sleep. But the Bible says that he gave his son bread and water and then drove him from the house. Could have given him a bag of gold, but he gave him bread and water and say, out of here. We know his mom takes him. He gets married in Egypt. He marries an Egyptian woman. Together they become the, uh, the parents of the Arab world as we know it today. From the Arab world came Muhammad. From Muhammad came Islam. From Islam came radical fundamentalists uh, that fly planes into buildings, that behead people, drive trucks into crowded marketplaces. Uh, they're a thorn in the side of the world. They cause so much chaos, so much death, so much terror, so much fear. They are wild children uh, that have inherited Inherited the spirit and the curse of their ancestor Ishmael who had an orphan spirit. 
Islam has come from an orphan spirited generation of people who have been deprived of a father and it has trickled down generation after generation after generation and it has cursed an entire people. What you're looking at here is a spirit that's at work. I had a girl that came to our church and got saved years ago. I remember we were having a revival. God was moving. Uh, and uh, 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 I, 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 I remember I was being approached by these young ladies. Uh, Pastor, we want to start a prayer meeting. I, I wasn't really into ladies' prayer meetings. I don't know if you have them here. God bless you. If you've been able to figure out, Pastor, how to do it, more grease to your elbows. I have never been able to figure out a ladies' prayer meeting. I had to shut one down where the ladies are rolling on the carpet, barking like dogs, meowing like cats. I said, what are you guys doing? This is over. We're done here. I remember one time a girl came up to me at the doors. I'm about to walk in. Pastor, can we have the ladies prayer meeting? I said, what y'all going to be praying about? We want to pray for husbands. I'm like, mm, no, I don't think so. I'm not doing it because I know what's going to happen. Father, the next brother, the when they see the brother walk through the doors, of the, I know where it's going. So I said, no, we're not doing it. I mean, if, a, if I can get one of our pastor's wives to come to the church, you guys can pray at church, whatever, you know, I know it's monitored. And you don't want to have to police a prayer meeting. God, man, I just haven't been able to figure out how to do it, folks. Because them girls are crazy. But anyway, this girl comes to church and gets saved. There are five of them in this revival. I remember all of them got saved. I mean, just the move of God over a period of time. And so the five of them started a secret covert CIA, FBI, James Bond 007 prayer meeting. <laughs> I never knew about it till it broke out in a fight. They finished praying, then they're punching, they're pulling hair, they're biting, they're scratching each other. The door swings open. They chase each other down the street. All five of them left the church. That's when the stupid pastor found out. When it was two ladies when I found out, I'm like, oh my God, what are these girls doing? Yeah, they were in a prayer meeting, and all this, from their prayer, they were drinking tea. One made a comment, and it was a fiat. They all started fighting. Wow. This one girl makes it back to church. She's 31 years old at the time. Folks, I've been over backwards. I did everything I could to help her. I just noticed that she was troubled. She was always upset. She was always, she would burst out in spontaneous tears. She was, I mean, just super angry. Like she would get so angry, she would hyperventilate. Her nostrils would start expanding. I'm like, sister, you need to calm down. She caused trouble everywhere she went. You put her in the nursery, she fights everyone in the nursery. Mothers didn't want to put their kids in the nursery because of this girl. You put her on the back row, fights everyone in the back row. Put her on the isolator on the front row, fights everyone there. You have to isolate her by herself. I remember she you would used to lose job after job. They fired me again, Pastor. There's a vendetta. They're hating on me. Listen, I mean, you mean every job? They're the ones that fall, and it's never you. She fights with people in her neighborhood. I saw pictures of her broken windows. Uh, I'm like, Emma, what are you doing in your neighborhood? She's causing an uproar in her neighborhood. One day she was in a car with her family. Uh, her dad's driving. Her and her younger sister are fighting on the back seat. The door opens. They fall on the road. I mean, this girl just can't contain herself. Uh, and I remember one day I was in her apartment uh, with her parents. I came for, there was a meeting. She had her own apartment. Her parents came over. Uh, and so I'm there. I'm trying to resolve, help them resolve an issue. She starts disrespecting her father. You, this, you. I say, hey, hey, calm down. That's your daddy. You can't talk to your daddy like that. Y'all talk to your daddy like that? The way we were raised and even with an abusive father, like I talked about last night, you respect your father. You respect your mother. Those are your parents. You only get one set. You respect them. And I, hey, listen, we, my generation, it's like, hey, your dad's talking, your head's down. Remember that generation? Maybe some of you are too young. You don't understand. There used to be a generation where when the, the teacher would walk into the classroom, uh, the students would stand up. But this generation, you, you want to fight your dad, slap your mama, cuss everybody with your pants hanging down. Listen to me here, folks. Uh, rebellious kids uh, don't understand what I'm talking about. But I said, you can't talk to your dad like that. And so she wanted to talk to me, and she began to tell me, Pastor, listen, there's some things that you don't know I need to tell you. When I was three years old, three, how do you even know what happened when you were three? When I was three years old, my baby sister's husband molested me.
I tried to tell my parents about it. They didn't do anything. This man got away with it. They didn't, I felt defenseless. They didn't come to my rescue. Three-year-old girl, she, at the age of 18, she says, my pastor's son raped me. I told my parents they didn't judge it. The pastor let his son flee the, 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 the country, and, uh, and my parents never left that church. They didn't judge this matter. Again, I felt defenseless at the age of 18. And she's telling me all the things that she went through. And I realized something as I begin to connect the dots uh, that this young lady uh, had an orphan spirit. And that spirit has troubled her all her life from the age of three to the age of 31, even after salvation in Christ. And now this woman is around 38 years of age and she's still wrestling with the same orphan spirit that had taken a hold of her at the age of three. My God. And as I begin to think about all these things and I'm, I'm pondering, I'm looking at the scripture, I'm thinking, oh God, Jesus, you're, you're addressing an issue here that's a real problem in society. It's a real problem, not just in the world, but in the church. There's nowhere where I've been uh, where this hasn't affected people or hasn't been uh, true to life uh, for many uh, that I have met in my lifetime. Uh, and I'm thinking, God, uh, this really is affecting this culture, this generation, this society of people. I begin to look at this and study it and, and, and just try to meditate and contemplate this. Uh, and in my studies, uh, I discovered that there are several ways that the orphan spirit manifests itself in the life of children and in the life of adults. I don't have time to go through all of them, but let me just kind of throw out a handful of them for you. Number one is they view correction as rejection. When you're corrected, you view it as a rejection. Yeah, you don't like me. I knew it. I always knew you had something against me. You're talking to me. You didn't talk to them. You're pointing at me. You ain't pointing at nobody else. Uh, what's your problem with me? Uh, well, because they are correcting you does not mean that they are rejecting you. Are you hearing me, brothers and sisters? Correction does not mean rejection. When you're being corrected, it's because somebody cares enough about you to pull you up and to call you out. If no one's correcting you, then unfortunately, sad to say, nobody loves you. Because if people love you, they will call you out and say, hey, 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 come here. What are you doing? What are you doing? You can't do that. That's not them hating on you. That's not them rejecting you. That's simply them loving on you. But when you have an orphan spirit, uh, you are twisted in your thinking and in your mindset uh, and your interpretation uh, of correction is that you're rejecting me. The basic building block of life is to be corrected. God can't do anything with you if you can't be pulled up. Hey, come here. Well, what do you mean? You can't talk. I'm not your, you're not my dad. Hey, I said, come here. I want to deal with an issue here. And it's because I care about, if I don't care about you, hey, let them self-destruct. Let them do what they want to do. Isn't it their life? They're an adult. They're growing up. Leave them to themselves. That's because they don't care about you. So if you ever felt like people have left you alone, it means they no longer care. It's like, we can't, oh, no, 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 no. Walking on eggshells with them, woo, just leave them. But you wouldn't do that with your own child. Say, listen, I know I've told you a hundred times, but I got to tell you again. And you know it's because I love you. That's why correction Let's say it. Correction does not mean rejection. Say it, choke. Correction does not Number two, they are ultra dependent, super dependent on you. They, and this is why they, they, they tend to overreact when they perceive or feel like you've let them down because they're hanging on to your coattail. Oh, you didn't remember my birthday. Uh, you're 41. You, I, I heard you invited some people over. Uh, you had this brother, that sister, that couple. I mean, I know you didn't invite me, but I hope you all had a good time. Oh, come on, man. I didn't invite you, not because I don't care about you, not because I don't love you. It's just that I didn't invite you because I didn't invite you. You make a new friend, they feel threatened. You sit next to somebody else other than them, they get upset and offended. I remember uh, I was walking down the, the steps once right before service. I'm rushing uh, to the bathroom. Uh, there were a number of people standing there on the staircase. Uh, uh, and I remember I shook a couple of people's hands and I ran. This young lady uh, contacts me. Pastor, is everything okay? She called me. I'm like, uh, yeah, what, what was the problem? Or have I done anything to offend you? I said, what are you talking about? 
of course you haven't done anything different. Why would you even say that? Well, it's just, it's just that the other day you ran down the stairs and you shook two people's hands uh, and you didn't shake. I mean, are you serious? So you think that because I didn't shake your hand, I have something against you. Folks, I got my own life to worry about. My wife, my kids, my church, ministry, missionaries, raising money, our conference. I got all this stuff. And you think I'm staying up at night getting angry over you. Of course not. I said I was just on my way to the bathroom. But because you have an orphan spirit and you are super dependent on other people, you tend to overreact when you feel like you've been let down. Number three, they're ultra independent. A little bit of independence is good. I'll say that again. A little bit of independence is good, but too much of it is toxic. It's bad for you. God never created you or designed for you to be super ultra independent. That's why we have fellowship. That's why we have each other. Fellowship is life, folks. And when you develop that I don't need anybody syndrome, you're in serious trouble. Oh, you could be hanging on for dear life, but you'll never ask for help. Oh, no, I got, we got, I heard you're moving home. I can get a few brothers in, help you move your house, get a, oh, no, 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 I already got the U-Haul. I've got this tape, but thank you for the offer. Thank you for that kind gesture, but I could take care of this. Super independent people. That's because they've been hurt in, in, in childhood. Hurt by a parent, hurt by a father, hurt by a mother. They've had to fend for themselves, get their own apartment, sleep under a bridge for a few weeks, and finally make it like, yeah, I'm not going to depend on anybody. I'll just make myself, I'll make things on my own. I'll make it happen. I don't need people. Yeah, I'm in this church, but I don't really need anybody. I'll make this on my own. I can make it happen. I've already got Jesus, and I've got common sense, and they're ultra super independent because they've been hurt in their childhood. And it's affected their relationship. It's affected their view on life, their outlook on things. And they don't realize that these layers and the sedimentation has piled up on top of the pain that was inflicted at some past or some time in their past. Number four, they have the tendency to isolate or to insulate themselves the instinct to withdraw physically or emotionally from other people. They isolate themselves. They insulate themselves. They keep people at arm's length. They would rather get a coffee and a book, uh, you know, or listen to a podcast, have their dog with them sitting on a hill than be with people. They would rather socialize alone in solitude uh, than be with the brethren. Uh, They have this instinct to withdraw themselves uh, physically uh, and emotionally. No, 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 no emotional type. Don't want to get too close. They keep people at arm's length uh, because they've been hurt before and they don't trust that they won't be hurt again. I've already been hurt before. You can only come so far, so far. They draw a a circle around themselves. They keep you at arm's length uh, because because they don't want you in other, other uh, instances uh, to discover what they're really like. Because if you get too close to me, you're going to find out what I'm really like. And then you're going to reject me and it's going to hurt me. So i got to keep you at arm's length. And so they isolate themselves from other people. Here's another one. They have the tendency to interpret things through the lens of their abandonment their disappointment, and their rejection. How they see things. They they, they filter everything through their own life's experiences. That's why what you see with your eye, what you hear with your ears, is always colored by the condition of your own heart. How you hear things, it's about everything that happened in my life. That's how I'm going to translate this, interpret this. What I'm looking at, what I'm viewing, what, 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 I remember what happened to me 17 years ago, six years ago, five years ago. And then you translate everything through your life's experiences, through your past. And it's, it's defective. Your vision, your judgment is, is clouded. Your view is skewed. Because you use your past as a filter.
Let me give you one more, and then I'll move on. Deep down, the orphan-spirited don't feel like they belong. I don't belong here. I'm not like, like everybody else. Look at them. They're all happy, always smiling. They got their little friends, little cliques, little clubs. People have their little marriages and everything, and I'm all here isolated. I don't think I belong. And they hear a voice telling them, get out, leave. You don't belong here. You're not like everyone else. Run, run away. And they develop a runaway spirit. But I came here to tell you that you do belong. God has placed you in his family. And in God's family, he gives you new mothers, new brothers, new sisters, new cousins, new nieces, new nephews. Oh, y'all didn't hear what I just said and get excited. Regardless of the color of your skin, your ethnicity, your background, regardless uh, of your social status or your upbringing, God has brought you into a family. Yeah? Psalm 68 verse 6, the Bible says God sets the solitary in families. The word solitary is the Hebrew word lonely. He, God takes the lonely people from this life uh, and he extracts them and he sets them into the house of God. He puts you right into the church and says, this is now your family. I know you've been rejected from your biological family. I know you've been hurt and you've been bruised. I know of your pain. I know about the past, but I'm bringing you out. God is after the underdogs. He's after the last, the least, the left over and the look behind or the left behind. And he brings you into the house of God and says, this is where you belong. You know, my dad was visiting uh, me in, in England years ago when I, I, I remember it was way back in the day. I, I think it, it might have been around uh, uh, 2004, maybe 2005. It might have been 2004, end of 2004. He was visiting for a couple months, lived with me in the home. I remember he was at the altar. My dad was, uh, he was, we, he broke down. And he said, son, I need to talk to you, you know. And uh, so he, 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 we find a corner. He says, hey, listen, I want to tell you something, what happened, well, you know, and so, so he was telling me this, this, this story about how uh, my mother had gotten pregnant. This is when they were living in Nigeria, West Africa, and my mom got pregnant. She uh, got a scholarship to go to England to study, and, uh, but the policy was that you couldn't be pregnant. You had to, you, you can't have a baby. You have, either have to have your baby or not have, choose not to have a baby at all, but she was pregnant. And he said that, uh, that, so they had to terminate the baby. They were going to have an abortion. They didn't go to, to the medical health service. Uh, he said they went down to see a witch doctor. And they went to see the witch doctor, and, and the witch doctor says, yep, no problem, uh, and gives them the bucket. He says, you fill the bucket with water, you carry it down to the riverside three nights in a row, and you speak these words. These were incantations. You speak this stuff into the water. Uh, and on the third night, he says, you're going to lose the child. So they did it. They paid the, the witch doctor uh, for the ritual and they carried the bucket down to the riverside uh, and they spoke the words into the bucket on the first night, spoke the words on the second night, spoke the words on the third night, folks. And my daddy told me blood started trickling down my mother's legs. Uh, he said, but the child didn't drop out. And he looked at me and said, you were the child, son. And I realized uh, that I was born for a reason. God saved me from the baby butcher. Some of you have no idea what God saved you from because you were meant to be. That's why that death couldn't take you. It couldn't snatch you, but it skipped over you. Uh, and I remember my mother calling all her children. And apologizing, you know, my mom got powerfully saved and it was my turn. She called me, son, I'm so sorry for what I've done to you growing up uh, in your life. Uh, I'm like, mom, listen, everything's under the blood. You're saved. I'm saved. We're healed. We move on. We've already been over this. She says, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I thought she called me because of the abortion attempt. I'm like, no, God. She says, no, I'm calling you about something else. I'm like, whoa, okay, so there's more now. And my mother... She said that I smuggled the pregnancy in, in England. So I realized this, is, this thing didn't work. We didn't attempt it a second time. This child must be special. And she, she said that they, she smuggled the pregnancy in England. And that's how I got to be born in England. 
Marston Green, 1967. I was born in Birmingham. She said that she had gone there to study, to do her master's degree. And she said I was an inconvenience to her life. She said, so she put me in foster care. I just found out six years ago that I was a foster kid. Didn't know till six years ago. Then I started connecting some dots. I'm like, hmm. They used to always joke about how I was never breastfed. I'm like, I, I never even thought to ask why I wasn't breastfed. That's, you were never breastfed. And they would laugh. Ah, you were the only one that wasn't breastfed in the family. Ah. You know, breast kid, breastfed kids are smarter. <laughs> ah, I would have been smarter. Oh, God. Unfortunate. But you know, when you breastfeed a child, that's when the child bonds maternally with its mother. And I never had that bonding with my mom. Things started to make a lot of sense to me, folks, after my mother told me this, because I, I began to understand why I was feeling the way I was feeling all my life. My dad never did anything with me, never took me anywhere. I'd have games at school, races. He would never come to it. I'm proud of you, son. Gone, you can do it. Never had him. Dad never hugged me, never told me he loved me. Abused us. And I realized why all of my life, folks, I've never missed my parents. It never made sense to me why I didn't miss them, why kids would miss their parents. It's just a natural feeling a natural emotion, just that oh, I long for my mom, my dad, oh God, I want to see them, I need to call them, I need to, oh, I want to be with them. I've never had that all my life. It never made sense till my mother told me that. Oh, folks, and then I realized, oh my gosh, I have an orphan spirit, even as a pastor. All the pain from my past, everything just started to, to surface. And I began to, gosh, so this is why I've been this way. This is why I've thought like this. This is why my attitude in this area or another has been this way. And then I began to seek God for healing. I remember just I was driving with my dad in the car, taking him to the airport, and I just, I just broke down in the car. I just started weeping. And then my father just broke down, weeping uncontrollably. I'm sorry, son. I'm sorry. We didn't even, not one word did we exchange. He just started saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for everything. Oh, folks, God touched my heart in healing. My dad passed away in 2019. And I remember I, I wept like a baby. I'm sitting in the airport terminal. I was in Turkey because I'm in transition. And I'm sitting there, in the, and I'm just sitting at the gate, just weep tears, just for, never, ever in my life. God had healed my heart, the longing for my dad, longing for my mother. My mother just passed away last month, uh, longing for them, uh, all that stuff uh, that, that I never had, that I never experienced. Uh, God had healed my heart completely uh, and restored me and took away this orphan spirit because I realized that I have a heavenly father. This is what Jesus says uh, as he's speaking to his, his disciples and the common people in Matthew 6, 9. He says, in this manner, therefore, pray our Father in heaven. Hallowed be that our Father in heaven. You have a Father in heaven. He's a heavenly Father who won't treat you like your earthly or biological father or parents will. In verse 31 and 32, he says, therefore, do not worry. You worry too much. He says, don't worry. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, but your heavenly Father knows what things you have need of. Your Father in heaven cares about you. The very hairs on your head are all numbered, folks. Even if you're wearing a wig, he knows how many hairs you've got because he's dedicated and he's devoted and he's committed to you. And Jesus begins to turn the attention of his disciples uh, to the heavenly father. You got to think about your heavenly father now. Oftentimes when we've been hurt and bruised by earthly parents, uh, it 
translates into our relationship and our view of God. God is not like your earthly parents. Can you say amen? My God. I remember being in, when I went to Bristol, uh, where I pioneered my first church, and I remember uh, uh, getting there and just kind of reading about the history of Bristol, southwest coast of England, uh, and um, it was George uh, Mueller that had gone there in, in the 1800s. He's from Germany, moved from Germany, relocated to, to Bristol, England, began, uh, uh, you probably have read about the great orphanage movements. Well, how it happened is that he couldn't help but notice these street kids, barefoot, half-dressed, running around, eating out of garbage cans. His heart was moved so deeply. Uh, when he got home, he's reading the book of James, chapter 1, verse 27, where the Bible says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. He says, prove your religion by reaching out to underdogs. You'll find this echoed in the book of Acts. So like if you're, don't neglect those people who were underdogs, those who were poor, those who were less privileged. And he says, look, these orphans and these widows, and that was what prompted him to start the whole orphanage movement. He housed over 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. He vowed to never receive monetary donation from anybody. People try to help him, but there was one prolific, profound story. One morning, he's with, his, with the kids. Uh, they're sitting around the dining room table. Uh, they're trying to have breakfast, uh, but there's no food, nothing, nothing to eat. And he says, let's pray. Let's bless the food. And they're all looking at him. Father, we thank you for the food we're about to receive. We ask your blessing over it in Jesus' name. All of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. It was the, 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 the local baker. God woke him up in the middle of the night. You can read the stories and told him, bake bread and take it to the orphanage. He baked all these loaves of bread, took it to the orphanage, set it on the table. Right as they're beginning to eat, there's another knock on the door. It's the milkman. His milk cart broke down outside the orphanage. He said, well, it's going to get spoiled. I might as well just donate it to the orphanage. He donates the milk. And that morning, the children had bread and milk for breakfast. Why? Because your heavenly father knows what things you have need of. My God, what a father. He is a father to the fatherless. He knows what your needs are. He knows the emptiness. He knows the pain. He knows everything. And the Bible says in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 15, for you have not received the spirit of bondage, again, to fear. Bondage always produces fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, you are adopted into God's family, and adopted children are always wanted. There, there, somebody always wants, oh, I just want to adopt. Uh, I've met so many beautiful couples, uh, even within our fellowship, that are adopting people. They'll adopt from Asia. They'll adopt from Africa. They'll take people from all over the world, uh, and they'll adopt them. Uh, and many loving families will do this, uh, even regardless of the fact that they've raised their own kids. Uh, we're going to adopt some children, and they would adopt. Uh, but this is what God has done for us. God has adopted us into his own family, and the Bible says now we call him Abba, Father. The word picture is that of a child sitting on its father's lap and saying, Daddy, Father. That's you. That's me. So my mother, let me go back to this story, and then I'll close. My mom, she said, um, you know, you, 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 you were an inconvenience to me, and so I, I, I put you into foster care, and and, uh, and I gave you to a lady called Mrs. Ballinger. And Mrs. Ballinger was a white English woman, milky white English woman, uh, you know, with this chocolate baby boy. Um, you know, it is black history, so I can talk about that a little bit, you know. <laughs> it, it's, it's a bad combo in 1967 in England, deep in the Midlands. Ooh, are you sure about that? When my mother finished her studies two years later, she came back to take me. She says, can I have my son back? She brought all the documentation, tried to get my mother to sign me over permanently. No, 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 you don't understand. I'm taking my boy now. Give me back my son. No, please let me keep him. No, I, I want to take my child back. I made him. You need to know. Listen, let me have him. Let me keep him. No, let me take him. They're going back. Both of them are in tears. Mrs. Ballinger had fallen in love with me. Oh, God. So finally she handed me back to my mom. My mother 
gets on an airplane, flies to the United States. My dad was studying in Texas. That's how I got to be raised in Texas. And um, I called my mother last year, and I said, Mom, I said, where is Mrs. Ballinger? I mean, how can I meet her? How can I? And my mom said, hey, listen, because you know, I've been living in England all these years. I lived in England 32 years. Because when I went back, you all don't know my story. I mean, maybe another day I'll share some of that with you. But I'm back in England. I'm pastoring. I'm, I'm a disciple in the church there. And, and all these years, it never even occurred to me to look for this woman. My mom said, oh, no, 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 no. When she took you, she was an old woman. And she's since passed away many years ago. I said, well, where did they lay her to rest? Where is the, the, the cemetery? I just want to go in and just look at the tombstone where is marked the woman who wanted me when my own mother didn't. I mean, I didn't say that to my mother, but I'm saying this. <laughs> I said, yeah, someone had asked me the question. They said, have you been to see the woman? Have you been to her cemetery? Have you? I said, no, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, man, I, I was in a church last year preaching, uh, um, I think it was Pastor, Sp was it Pastor Sospansky? Sp no, it wasn't his church. It was, um, uh, I think it was Lobano Jr., his church. There was a brother in the church that started doing all this research online, trying to find me, this woman. But there were so many ballingers to find their final resting place. And I was like, God, if I could just find it and just go there, take a picture of the tombstone and just have it say here is the woman here lay this woman that wanted me she, my mom said we don't know where they buried her we don't know where they buried her husband we have no clue where the cemetery is i just wanted to know i don't know if it's because i just wanted to go there and just say thank you even though she can't hear me but there was a gratitude in my heart for the person who took me they didn't have to but they took me and that's exactly what God has done for us. He took us. He didn't have to, but he did. And today, we're going to deal with the orphan spirit. I want you to bow your heads with me. Jesus, 